The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, we are so glad you're here with us today on Palm Sunday. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we just want to welcome you, especially those who are guests here uh, this morning. Um, we're just so, uh, just when I, when I hear this worship team prepare and uh, get here early and hear them go through these songs, it just really pumps me up, gets me excited about worship, and hopefully you're excited too uh, about hearing about what God did on Palm Sunday. But before we get to that, I just want to remind you of one thing that we heard in the announcements, but I uh, might have missed it because it was the first one. Love Our City is coming up, and you say, hey, what's Love Our City? Well, this is an event where you you get to grab some family members, a uh, small group, uh, people like that, and you get to serve all over our city. You can even snap a, a little shot of this QR code if you want, uh, get your camera out, and get signed up even as I'm talking. I don't think that's rude at all because I'm the local outreach pastor and I need people to jump on board with this. So it's all supported organizations uh, throughout our community, and there's opportunities on Friday night. There's also opportunities on Saturday morning. So we'd love for you to get on board, sign up. If we fill up, then we'll find more opportunities. We'll extend it to an afternoon. We don't uh, want us and you guys to not miss out on opportunity to serve, but if you don't fill it up, that means my family has to run around and do all these jobs all weekend, and uh, I don't think we're capable of that. So please, help us out. Love our city in a great way a week from Friday and a week from Saturday. We'd love for you guys to join it. So today for Palm Sunday, we're looking at uh, the top Topic, redefining winning. When I thought about redefining winning, again, a lot of my illustrations always go back to growing up, uh, one of four kids back in Philadelphia, and there's a lot of mess that went on, and especially me being the youngest and the most antagonistic kid probably in the neighborhood. Uh, and so uh, when I thought about redefining winning and what God does with this, I thought about a, a situation when I was playing stickball, and some of you are like, what in the world is stickball? Well, the way we played stickball was uh, we would get a wiffle ball bat, cut off the end of the bat, stuff it with wet newspaper, duct tape it back together, and then it was a tennis ball that was pitched like a two bounce, and then you played it like baseball. And so our, our whole neighborhood, we had this neighborhood with full of kids and guys my age, and we would go out there and play in this parking lot, and there was like this, this two-story fence, a chain-link fence that was like the green monster. Uh, my brother played with us, which is two and a half years older than me, and just imagine someone that doesn't look anything like me and is a lot stronger than me, that's my brother. They had to buy special pants, just to fit his thighs. And so when he would play, when he would play in that green monster, there was actually a hole cut in the bottom of the fence. We didn't do it, I promise, but it was there. And, uh, and so this hole, whoever was playing the outfield would have to go on the other side of the fence when my brother was up because it was a guaranteed home run. But if you caught his ball in the air, it was still an out. So that was just how we even things out. So we often were opponents uh, in pretty much in life because we were so opposite and we just really went at it uh, at different times in our lives. But this one particular day that I'm thinking of, uh, we were playing and uh, Somewhere along the way, I don't know what happened, but uh, he decided he was going to quit the game. And it's like tie score. It's like one of those, you know, soccer games that ends in a tie. It's just wrong, you know. But this is what happened. And we like, we can't have a tie. And even in my head, I'm like, ties, are you kidding me right now? And so he just quits and starts walking off. 
And we couldn't finish up, and we're uh, basically, it was almost dinner time anyway, so we're, we're going home, and it was about two blocks away, but I have my bike, and my buddy jump, jumps on the handlebars, and I'm riding him on the handlebars home, and we're passing my brother. I could not just ride past him, right? He's a quitter. He needed to hear it. So what did I say as I'm riding by? You quit, we won. And I don't know how many times I said it, but one was too many because before I knew it, uh, I was getting hit in the back of the head with his custom-made stickball bat. <laughs> My buddy goes flying off onto the pavement, and then I go over the handlebars and fly off the pa- onto the pavement as well. And I learned real quick, once again, maybe I shouldn't annoy my brother. But I just kept doing it anyway. But the idea is this. My deal was this. I was redefining winning. It was a tie score. Nobody won. But I was redefining it. Hey, he quit. So I'm declaring myself the winner. And a lot of times in our lives, we want to define winning how we decide it's going to be. And we're going to look today and see, you know, Jesus does a little different. But what does our culture say about Winning, the culture we travel in as a child or adolescent, even a college student. Maybe it's, it's the school you go to, athletics, music, dance, job performance. Maybe you got your kid into that GT program, which really just means you're paying extra money. Uh, but maybe they're in there and you think they're really smart, and that's great. Maybe Jimmy is smart. But you get yourself into that program. Well, he's winning now. I'm winning as a parent. Look at what I did. Just wait. It's okay. You'll find many times where you fail as a parent as well. Uh, but as an adult, As an adult, you get to these points in your life where it's like, uh, you know, success maybe or winning in your life is like just get out of the house. Maybe, again, the college students, that's what your parents are hoping for someday, that you'll stay out of the house, right? Uh, That might be winning in your mind. But winning might also be a good job, you know, that's progressing, a marriage that's, that's solid, a good house, maybe traveling, maybe buying stuff, you name it. Our culture decides what winning looks like. But however, when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he doesn't define winning that way. Now, he does want you to have a happy marriage uh, if if he wants that for you. But that's not what defines winning. If you look at his life and what he said throughout the Gospels, he says, you want to be great? Serve. Serve others. Lay your life down. You want to gain life? Lose it for my sake. You, you, you want to uh, have crowns stored up from you, for you in heaven and eternity? You want crowns stored up? Then what do you have to do? Give your stuff away. Wait a second. The world told me I need to gain all these things. But Jesus is telling you an opposite opinion, the correct opinion on what it looks like to actually win in this life. And today we're going to see as he approaches the week of his life, we can clearly see what the crowd thought winning was versus what he knew a true winner looks like in God's eyes. So in our time together, we're going to look at the prophecy, the person, and the power of Palm Sunday. Lots of Ps. Say that together real fast about 10 times. So let's first look at the prophecy of Palm Sunday. Before we get into the Gospels, we can find the Gospels, this story, in all four Gospels. They're all in agreement that Palm Sunday happened, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. But before we get into the Gospels, we need to go back to a book that was written over 500 years before Jesus was born, which is the book of Zechariah. Zechariah lived and 
He prophesied in many ways. Zechariah was uh, one of the most quoted prophets in the New Testament. We don't have time for it, but we could go through a long list of prophecies that came true about Jesus that Zechariah uh, prophesied. And right in the smack dab in the middle of this book, we see an astonishingly detailed prophecy about Jesus, about what we're talking about today. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I love these prophecies that I read that are so specific, like the prophecy about Jesus being born in this little town of Bethlehem in Micah. We see these specific prophecies that Bethlehem wasn't even big enough to have a dot on the map. But because Jesus came and was born there, it has a dot now. That's how big it was. But he, they, there was prophecy. Micah prophesied about that. And here Zechariah is saying, he's not just going to come in. He's not just going to ride in. But I'm going to tell you what he's going to ride on. And not only what he's going to ride on, I'm going to tell you how old that donkey's going to be. 500 years before it happened. It just blows my mind and strengthens my faith when I read things like this in Scripture. And hopefully it strengthens yours as well. So there's the prophecy of Palm Sunday. And secondly, we can see the person of Palm Sunday, which every Sunday school kid or church kid that was up here could answer, Jesus, right? Jesus, he's the person of Palm Sunday. In Luke 19 is where we're at today. Luke 19, verse 28, we're gonna see all about the person of Jesus over the next 10 verses If you look before verse 28, you actually see that Jesus had just finished sharing a a parable on stewardship. The 10 minas, which the 10 minas, it was was about a three months wage. And, And so he's talking to them about handling their money well and using it well and responsibly for God's honor and glory. And then he moves into this part. Luke recounts here in verse 28 about Jesus and where he was heading. Verse 28 says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of this called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. I believe we have a map of where he was heading. So he's coming from Bethany, heading that direction toward the temple. And we're gonna finish with the temple today. But this is where Jesus was heading. And we see him on this journey. And then we come to verse 29 where he says some things to his disciples. Verse 29, he says, saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, I don't know about you, but in this story with Jesus telling the disciples, if I put myself in the disciples' position, uh, knowing myself and knowing what I used to do to people and even what I still do to some junior high kids sometimes just because it's fun, is I'd be messing with them. And if I'm Jesus here and I'm, well, if I'm the disciples, I'm listening to Jesus, I'm like, all right, hold up. What are you asking me to do? You're telling me to go into this city Find a colt, a baby donkey, a a colt, a foal of a donkey, not a baby, but a foal kind of in between. And you want me to find it, just a stranger, 
and you want me to untie it and take it, and if the owner (laughs) says, what are you doing? You're gonna want me to just say, ah, Jesus needs it, and everything's good. Now, you know, obviously they didn't have these back then, but I'd be looking for video cameras, right? Like, where are the hidden cameras? Am I on a show right now? But this is what Jesus says. Go do it. So we see here that Jesus is the leader of all the saints, meaning Jesus was looked to as the leader. So even if he asks a ridiculous request or gives a ridiculous command, most of the time they're like, okay, I can trust you. I've watched you do this. You're worthy of following. You're, You're worthy of being my leader. And so throughout his ministry, we look at people following him, even out into the wilderness, people that don't even bring food. And they're like, don't even worry about it. I mean, when you go on a journey, you're, pa- I mean, okay, maybe you don't, but I pack food. I like to eat. And so if I'm going somewhere, I'm packing food. But even for them, they were so uh, set on following and, and seeing their leader or their potential leader that they left everything, including food behind. He was the leader of the saints, but he was also the fulfillment of all things. Verse 35 They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, not just the 12, his disciples meaning the whole group, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the almighty works that he had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew adds a little more detail here in verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse eight and nine. He says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and here's where the branches come in, and other cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who's coming in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, we can see here also another prophetic quote being fulfilled. We quoted this at the beginning of our service during the welcome time, Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So we have prophecy all over this encounter. So although the person of Palm Sunday was obviously Jesus, the people were confused about what he was ushering in. It's an interesting thing, and even when you think about, you see these kids grabbing these palm branches. I didn't want to burst their bubble, but uh, as they're grabbing these palm branches, you know what these palm branches signified? We want death. Death to the Romans. That's what was happening. So in this moment, when waving the palm branches wasn't this peaceful thing, oh, Jesus is hot, you know, let me wave them as he goes by. This is palm branches, meaning we want war. We want him to overthrow the Roman government. Our king is come. Podcaster Keith Giles puts it this way. Those palm branches were a direct throwback to the Maccabean period when the triumphant Jewish warriors rode into Jerusalem. The people celebrated the victory over the Seleucids, which incidentally was followed immediately by a ritual cleansing of the temple. Just keep that in mind in the later uh, time of our, our time together. At that time, the people waved palm branches as a symbolic, uh, a symbol of military conquest over an oppressive enemy. By waving those palm branches, the people are saying that they are ready for war. They're ready for the blood of Romans to be spilled in an uprising that they hope Jesus will lead them in. It's a different kind of Palm Sunday, right? Maybe different than maybe you heard growing up. But this is what was happening, and they were wanting 
war. They were running to overthrow this Roman oppressor. So as mentioned earlier, Jesus continually redefined winning. He continually kind of did the opposite of what people said winning looked like. And maybe we can take a few moments now and look at worldly winning versus kingdom winning and kind of compare the two in these next three points. Worldly winning shows the people waving palm branches as a sign of coming victory over the Romans. So this is what more they were looking for in this picture. Maybe they were looking for something like this a picture that depicts the uh, original William Wallace, not the Mel Gibson version uh, in Braveheart, but this depicts the original William Wallace who was coming as a warrior. Maybe they were looking for that, and it's kind of interesting if you look and kind of research this a little bit, uh, you realize that Jesus was almost like taking over this parade, so to speak, with, uh, with satire, in the sense that they're looking for this, and guess what I'm gonna ride in on? A donkey that actually signifies peace. And not only a donkey, a fall of a donkey. And I know it, it messes with your mind, it messes with mine as I was thinking, my mind as I was thinking this week. It's like even imagine the, the kind of the weirdness of it, like a grown man like his toes dragging as he's riding on this little thing, right? Or you go to like a, a, a petting zoo and you pay a ridiculous amount of money for your kid to, to walk around with his little pony. This wasn't like this, some people call it this triumphal entry and, and yes, it was triumphal. We're gonna look at that because of what he said he was gonna do, but not really what the people wanted. Because it was, if it was like what the people wanted, that's what he would have rode in on but he wrote in on something different. So worldly winning was like, let's look at this. Kingdom winning shows Jesus embracing the palm branches as the embodiment of final victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? Jesus writing in is saying, I have the victory, but I don't have the victory you're thinking of. I have ultimate victory, not over an oppressive people, but an oppressive whole system. I have the victory over sin. I have the victory over judgment. I have the victory over death. He's raising the standard of what worldly winning versus kingdom winning looks like. Also, worldly winning shows the people looking for a show of pride and power, right? We can see an example of pride and power on the screen here where you got Infinity War and you got Thanos there and boom, he's snapping his finger and half of society is wiped off the face of the earth. That's what they're looking for. Get a glove, Jesus, right? Let's check it out. Wipe these people off the face of the earth. These Romans that are pressing us, get rid of them. But that's not the winning when it comes to kingdom winning. No, kingdom winning shows Jesus riding humbly on a donkey. It wasn't an accident that he chose a cult, right? A cult of a donkey. It was the opposite of a majestic horse. But let's not get it twisted. I don't want us to miss this. It's not that Jesus was uh, fulfilling what culture portrays him as a lot, this long-haired, meek and mild, you know, milk-toast guy that is just a pushover, right? This isn't what Jesus was. And as a matter of fact, I was reminded by my wife this week as we talked about that, about Revelation 19, verse 11. Here's how Jesus comes back. You hear this power. 
Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Jesus was the only one that could exist perfectly in moments of humility on the fall of a donkey and will also exist in power coming to judge the nations. But here in this moment, we see him symbolizing peace. Jesus even reminded us that he is the prince of peace. Tim Keller explains it this way. He's coming in to rule. He's coming in to save, but not taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. He's going to triumph through weakness. And so his followers can only come to salvation by repenting and admitting their needs. So in these moments, he's showing this is how you come to me. You come humbly. And then worldly winning also shows the people shouting. What were they shouting? What word? Hosanna, right? Does anybody know what that word means? Save us now. The word means save us now. Hosanna, that's being said. Even if you go back to verse 11 in Luke 19, you see the people were expecting something different. Verse 11 says they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So this is what they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, God in the highest. And he's saying, here, right now, please, right now, save us. This was a rallying cry and a hope for present victory. And on the contrary, Jesus was experiencing it more like a future victory parade. I mean, imagine this. Like, uh, I know I use the Eagles as an example a lot, my, my team, my NFL team. So I'll just use the Chiefs. The Chiefs won this year. I can admit it. Uh, I'm not one of those phony fans. But imagine the Chiefs when the, before the season starts in the preseason having a, uh, a Super Bowl parade. Like, how obnoxious is that? Well, they probably could have because they're really good. But... It's just crazy to think about. What? Why are you doing the parade right now? But in a way, this is kind of how I picture Jesus, right? He's like, all right, give me a parade. Guess what? I'm bringing victory, ultimate victory, not what you think is victory. So go ahead, celebrate. I'm the Savior. I'm coming to save the world, but not in the way that you think I'm coming. Kingdom winning shows Jesus riding down the street, knowing he had already won. Jesus came as the eternal savior. John 11, 25 and 26 says, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's your winning. If you've come here today as a guest or maybe you've been here a few weeks and you're not a believer, you don't know Jesus, today's the day to start winning. Now there's a lot of memes making fun of people he's winning at life when they just fall on their face and things like that. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about truly winning for all eternity that you can put your trust in the Savior, the King, who paid the price for your sin, who died on the cross for you, And you can be winning today in eternity because of your decision to trust Christ as your Savior. But for us that maybe call ourselves believers, what's your definition of winning in this life? 
Is it like uh, our fickle society that basically props people up, whether it's an entertainer, an athlete, a politician, and props them up for a little while because they're doing well, because they have success, but when they screw up, I don't know them, let's throw them under the bus, let's put them on CNN, whatever, and now they're gone? You know, is it that type of winning? Is it the winning that is found here, even in this passage? The world's definition that props a king up, waves palm branches, throws their coat down and literally five days later crucifies them? Do we have a fickle definition of winning? Do we have this definition of winning that depends on culture, depends on what's happening right now, depends on uh, how I'm feeling today based on emotion? Or is our definition of winning based on the one who came in on a donkey and rode in as the victor, as the victor over the grave, as the victor over death, as the victor over sin. Is that how we define winning in our lives? Maybe I could ask you even further, what does your definition of winning look like to your kids or to maybe your peers? those around you, if they wrote a little essay on what you think winning is without your input, what would they write? How would they say you define winning? Not how you speak it, but how you act. In that essay, would they say, man, he was a man of the word. He led our family well. He wasn't about material possessions. And we had good things, but that's not what it was about. Or was that those people, those friends, or those family members right? Man, it was about stuff. It was about likes. It was about success. It was about image. How do you define winning? And by that definition, do you live a false gospel to the people around you? A hypocritical gospel. So we've seen the prophecy. We've seen the person of Palm Sunday. Now let's look at this power in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, you know, the Pharisees, they were always hanging around. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here it is. Jesus puts the Pharisees once again in their place. Hey, silence your disciples. He's like, okay. You can have me silence them, but guess what? My creation's still gonna scream my name. I don't know if you've ever visited places like Manitou Springs and Colorado and all those rocks out there and uh, places like uh, Utah or the Grand Canyon, whatever it is, that you just see these massive rocks and hear you saying the rocks will cry out, the very stones will cry out. And when you're before something of that magnitude, you can almost just hear them crying out. God is great. Our creator is amazing. And here he's saying, it doesn't matter. Go ahead, I'll silence them. And then verse 41 and 42, a very iconic set of verses that we a lot of times miss on Palm Sunday. We kind of stop at 40 and miss it. 
Jesus weeps over the people of Jerusalem. Look at 41. And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Here's Jesus heading into his week of suffering, and he's weeping over the lost. See, we often see Jesus' combative nature with the religious leaders, right? Putting them in their place, calling them whitewashed tombs and other things, you know, kind of showing them who's boss. But we don't see, sometimes we don't, we see it, but we don't really highlight the fact that he cared for them. He wept over them. Maybe for us, as we go into times of suffering and trial and pain, maybe God wants us to think this direction in our suffering. Maybe he's using this suffering when people ask you about it. Loss of a loved one, sickness, different things. When they ask you about it, you have an answer to give, as scripture says, of the hope that lies within you. And here's Jesus heading into what he knows is a week of suffering, yet he's crying over the lost. What a great lesson for us. Then Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem in 43 and 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He predicts, prophesies the end of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Which leads to these final verses that I I didn't grow up hearing on Palm Sunday very often. I'm sure my dad did them as a sermon. I just wasn't paying attention like I should. But uh, oftentimes you don't hear where Jesus destroyed, like just messed the money changers up in the temple connected to Palm Sunday. But that's exactly what happened. Right after he comes in, Verse 45, he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So here he is, right after this procession, right after this parade, he goes out, weeps over the people who are lost, and then goes immediately into the temple, right? And sees these thieves taking advantage of those trying to offer sacrifices, uh, those who uh, were poor and, and those who didn't have the money they needed, but yet they're still driving up the charge for them to offer a sacrifice. And Jesus comes in and tips the tables over, shows his power. But it wasn't just him showing his power physically, but it was also showing his spiritual power over the place they were in, which was the temple. See, by doing this, by driving the thieves out and claiming this to be his house, he was saying, not only do I own the temple, he's saying, I am the temple. He's saying, in a few days, you're gonna see the temple veil torn in two that's separated from the holy to the holiest place. And you're gonna see the veil torn in two because I am the temple. And I have the power and I am to be worshiped. And so it's just an amazing setting. And then verse 47 and 48 says, he was teaching daily in the temple. He says, I own it. Guess what? I'm gonna teach in it, right? And he's teaching in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But look, I love this verse. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his every words. And you might say, man, 
Sam, if, if I had Jesus in front of me, if I had him doing these crazy things and putting leaders in their place and saying, I'm the temple and all these things, if I had him in front of me, I would be hanging on his every words too. I'd be like Mary sitting at his feet. I'd be uh, you know, spending money on perfume and, and washing his, his feet with his perfume and all these things. I would do all that. But if you say those things, then you don't really understand that you have his words. You have his words. You have it right here. More words than anybody here in this situation had. And you can pour over his words. You can sit at his feet. You can open this word and know him in such a deep way. But instead, what do we do? We get numb. TV, entertainment, phone, you name it. I'm not going to bash them all because I do it too. But the reality is we have his words and he wants to speak to us, but instead of picking this up, we pick something else up. And instead of hanging on his every words, we let it collect dust. You've been gifted the very words of God. You can hang on them day and night more than any of these people could have. So we've come to understand the prophecy, the person, the power of Palm Sunday. We've observed that only one who can truly redefine winning is Jesus. So in response to what we've heard today, maybe we could take some time to assess how we can redefine winning in our lives. For non-believers, again, you can embrace the victorious king today. For those that don't know Jesus, just embrace him. You will instantly be winning in life. Instantly. You trust Christ as your savior. He will give you new life. He will give you new purpose. But for us that call ourselves believers, my encouragement would be the same encouragement I give my students when they ask questions about the future, when they ask questions about priorities, I often turn them to Romans 12, one and two. And I encourage you, if you don't know this, memorize it this week. If you can't memorize things, tattoo it on your face backwards so you can look in the mirror and read it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here it is. You want to win in life. You want to win according to what Jesus said and Jesus showed in Palm Sunday. Here it is. Daily, you offer yourself as a sacrifice to God. Part of that offering is hanging on his every words. Part of that offering is redirecting your attention, redirecting priorities, changing your life around so that it revolves around him and his word instead of what you want in your human flesh. And so for us, we can allow God and allow the spirit to do that. So as we transition into a time of communion today, let's take some time to meditate on what we've heard If you're new and never experienced the saving power of Jesus, we are glad you're here. But this time of communion isn't for you. This is time for believers to really consider what Jesus is doing and what he's done. 
So I'd like this time of prayer right now to be a time of reflections, personal self-reflection. Maybe you have some things to confess today because you've been pursuing what the world says is winning. Maybe there's things in your life that you need to just take time and get right before God. I ask that you just, just submit to the Spirit's leading in your life and confess that today. Ask the Spirit to examine you, to show you things, maybe even unknown sin in your life. So take a minute or two to pray before God and confess before Him before we move on in remembering the Lord's Supper. God, you've come to give peace. You sent your son Jesus to be peace. Lord, I thank you for the freedom we have in knowing you that we don't have to run this crazy race where we just exhaust ourselves trying to perform for this world and its expectations. I thank you for the rest you give us. The rest from our our struggles, the rest from uh, just trying to perform. Lord, I pray that we will enter into this rest even now in this time of communion as we remember what you've done for us, what you accomplished on the cross. So we come to this table, not because we must, but because we have the opportunity and privilege, not because we're strong, but because we're weak. We take this bread not because of any goodness of our own, but because we have the right because of Jesus and his mercy. We take the cup because he loved us and gave himself for us. So we come and meet the risen Christ today. We praise you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. As we consider this bread... And as we think about what was done five days later from what we just talked about today on Palm Sunday, where his body was broken for you. His body was abused and beaten and whipped to the point that it was unrecognizable. And this is the body that we celebrate today. The fact that he willingly gave of his life for us, Luke twenty-two nineteen says, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then we move on to the cup. We look at this cup and we were reminded of the blood that was shed. That Jesus willingly shed his own blood, not like any other blood, 
but the perfect Son of God, the sinless Son of God, who shed his blood for us that we can have eternal life, eternal relationship with the Father. Luke twenty two twenty says, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. God, we are so thankful for the sacrifice you made for us. Your blood that was shed, your body that was broken. Lord, I pray that even now as we get ready to head out, Lord, as we get ready to sing this final song, that this final song will be a rallying cry for us as we look to win in a different way, to change what we maybe have made habits of and make new habits of, of offering our lives as living sacrifices as a result of the sacrifice you made on the cross for our sin and the victory, the winning that you showed us over death. It's your name we pray, amen.